Chapter 7 of Seeing Darkly. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Seeing Darkly by Rev. John Sparhawk Jones. Chapter 7 A Thanksgiving Sermon. Quote, and Jesus answering said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? There are not found that returns to give glory to God save this stranger. Unquote. Luke 17, verses 17 and 18. Leprosy is described as a cutaneous disease, beginning with crusts and scabs upon the skin, thence extending to the tissues and joints, until the frame falls to pieces by a wasting gangrene. It was not an uncommon disorder in the East in the time of Christ and always. One afflicted by this loathsome disease was unfitted for social intercourse, both on account of the hideous disfigurements, the seams, cracks, and ulcers it wrought, and also by reason of its infectious character. It is, therefore, a significant statement that these men stood afar off. This is a stroke of truth and nature, and precisely what lepers would do. They did not intrude into the presence of others without due notice. They knew they were a shunned and isolated class, and regarded with both pity and disgust. In keeping with the general principle, or to illustrate the proverb that misery loves company, and to indemnify themselves possibly for the social ostracism and loneliness incident to their condition, ten of these unfortunate persons, according to Mark's narrative, had found each other and made common cause and common stock. They traversed the country, passing from village to village and picking up any windfall of good fortune that might betide. And one day they fell in with Jesus, the prophet of Galilee, in one of his missionary tours. By some sign or rumor they recognized him as the man who had been eminently successful in the treatment of diverse diseases and invoked his benevolent interference on their behalf, careful, however, to measure their distance and not to approach nearer than custom and propriety would allow. Master, have mercy on us, they cried eagerly, with hearty accord. Whereupon Jesus signified that he did not propose any abrupt break with Judaism. By his direction, quote, go show yourselves to the priest, unquote. This was a provision of the Levitical law, that a cleansed leper must be inspected and passed by a priest before he could return to citizenship or participate in the religious worship and solemnities of the church. He must receive a clean bill of health from the proper official, the Jewish priest. In compliance with this ancient and prescriptive usage, Jesus said to these men, quote, Go, show yourselves to the priest. Unquote. This was equivalent to an assurance that they would find themselves cleansed by the time they reached him. Otherwise, he could do nothing for them. He could not sprinkle them with the bunch of cedar, scarlet, and hyssop, nor pontificate on their behalf according to the ritual provided for such occasions. They must be clean before he could certify the fact. And so the affair actually eventuated. As they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, conscious of the change that had passed upon him and full of gratitude to his healer, retraced his steps to make public recognition of the wonderful and rapid cure, and finding his benefactor fell down at his feet with fervent thanksgiving. Seeing him, Jesus recollected that there were ten in the same bad plight, and directly broke out in the plaintive appeal, quote, Where are the nine? Were there none found that returned to give glory to God, save this alien? 
unquote, for he was a Samaritan. The teaching of the incident lies on the surface. It means that man is prone to forget his benefits and mercies, and lays more stress upon what he has not than upon what he has. It is our human tendency to take our blessings for granted and as a matter of course. Man seems to look upon all good things, pleasurable sensations, comforts, even luxuries, as his birthright, upon which he has a natural, inalienable claim, giving him just ground for complaint if he does not receive them. A stroke of good fortune, an agreeable surprise, any desideratum creates only a transient ripple and leaves but a dim impression. Instead of being thankful for it as a sheer gratuity, an extra dividend, the individual only finds in it a reason why he should receive more of the same kind and oftener. This is one of the standing objections and discouragements to almsgiving. You give a dole, a coin of money, to some broken, ragged applicant, to tide him over a crisis, and before many days he returns upon you again. Should you decline, alleging that you have done all for him that you intend to do, all that goes for nothing. You must keep on giving if you expect the wellspring of his gratitude to keep on gushing. Or it may be you are in a position to grant promotion or a larger wage to someone. You decide to do so. He gets the advancement and its accompanying perquisites. After a while a place still higher up falls vacant. He then wants that, but for sufficient reasons you pass him by and fill the vacancy with another candidate. Again, your former benefit is forgotten, falls dead, does not count, is water spilled on the ground. Human nature is so constituted for the most part that if once you begin, you must continue to help it, else the stream of thanksgiving will run scant and shallow, and finally stagnate and dry up altogether. Gratitude is a rare exotic, Small and narrow souls are not equal to the effort. If we philosophize upon the fact, it is owing, of course, to that radical trait of our nature, selfishness. Man is a colossal egoist. Selfishness is the base of him. He imagines that nothing is too good for him, that he has a natural right to everything worth having, that he receives no more than he deserves, and that he is often unfairly dealt with by the overruling providence. This is a general impression. Men feel that they have a natural claim upon God, that he shall make them happy and contented, and failing this, they are prone to grumble, to impeach the divine moral government, and to become critical and even resentful. This attitude, if we may analyze it, undoubtedly results from the instinct of self-esteem and self-aggrandizement, which is a fundamental note of our nature. Men do not generally ask, what warrant had I to expect this good, this gift, this largesse, what virtue or quality in me establishes a perpetual claim upon it? What reason had I supp to suppose that it would last? And this question does not occur to the average man. He takes it for granted, with the air and mien of one who has been rifled of his rights and goods if any curtailment or shrinkage takes place. For substance, it is the story of Jesus and the lepers. Nine of them, as the effect of his order, found themselves suddenly white and clean, and they thought no more about it. They went each about his business. They took it as a matter of course. What use in a recovered leper thanking God when he had only come by his own and returned to his normal state of health, and when lepers were the exception? Why should he not have a clean skin instead of a scabbed one? Who had a better right than he to sit at table, to join in its pleasures and convivialities, to frequent synagogue and temple, and to enjoy life? 
Could any good reason be assigned why a leper should be cooped up and debarred entrance among his fellows and not stand upon equal terms with other people? The nine seem to have reasoned in this manner, all except the Samaritan. Moreover, it is genuine human reasoning, precisely the same which most men indulge in. It was the opinion of nine lepers out of ten, and it is the opinion of nine-tenths of humanity still that they have a clear and perfect title to all the natural good that comes along. Let the supreme providence take a human being and set him down in the midst of dishes, lounges, perfumes, conservatories, equipages, large dividends, a paradise of splendor and profusion, and then begin to cancel this and that, to cut off this superfluity and that supply, and wipe out another asset, and he or she will be a very remarkable and rare person who does not frown and complain, but maintains a cheerful mood, even although not seriously disabled. True, his roses did not bloom so luxuriantly, and he was disappointed in his pear trees. He had like to have lost his hothouse by fire on a cold night during the winter, and his fast and favorite horse fell lame. A few minor misfortunes befell which did not really infringe the substance of his property, yet he imagines they have seriously undermined his grounds for thanksgiving. And the truth is, the individual has accustomed himself to a fixed scale of living, and to certain fixed, unalterable conditions which have become essential to his happiness, and the consequence is that any limitation or restriction, even in the matter of some artificial and superfluous want, cannot be entertained with composure and is regarded as a grievance. I suppose the truth lies about here, that man living on the earth has good reason to expect food, raiment, shelter, the necessaries of life. It is fair to suppose that the benevolent power who brought him here would not leave him unprovided with the essential things. But beyond this, it would be hard to show that any creature has an indisputable claim upon the Creator for superfluities. Is God unkind to Eskimos and Hottentots, herding together in soot and squalor, in skins and feathers? No, their lives are doubtless contented and happy. Their environment matches their tastes and state of culture. The fact that God has disclosed higher purpose in relation to some than to others does not impugn the divine benevolence, if all have what is suited to their capacity and need. This general tendency to take our good things, our extras for granted, is the feature rebuked by Christ in his query, quote, Where are the nine? Unquote. What cause could even those unhappy lepers show why they ought certainly to be healed under the government of a merciful creator? Is it not plain that had any such argument existed, Christ would not have expressed surprise at their ingratitude? One is not expected to be profusely thankful for what he has a clear right to have and to hold. Evidently, the whole matter of thanksgiving is settled upon its true basis by this remark of Jesus to the grateful Samaritan so that if any one is disposed to say he has nothing to thank God for, then thank God that you are not a leper, a blistered, disfigured, offensive leper. Undoubtedly this is the teaching of the incident. Thank God that you are not suffering from evils that you could readily imagine, and concerning which you can show no sound reason why they have not overtaken you. Take nothing for granted. This is the doctrine inculcated by Christ's interview with the lepers. Do not count confidently upon any creature good. Do not conclude that if quails fall in the desert, once in a while, they are intended as a permanent substitute for manna. Do not fail to recognize that men have no absolute claim upon any commodity or comfort under present arrangements in such a sense that they can justly impeach the divine administration should it be withdrawn. 
Remember that God calls upon us to be thankful that we are not lepers, thankful for negative immunities as well as for positive blessings, thankful for what we have escaped as well as for what we enjoy. Probably this is not popular doctrine, and yet it is a direct inference from the surprise of Jesus upon the return of the Samaritan, quote, where are the nine, quote, as if he had said, quote, do they think that the goodness of God is under obligation to cure them? Do they imagine that the universe is tributary to their well-being? Is there any reason in the nature of things why they must get well? Where are they? Where are the nine? Unquote. The conclusion is obvious. Man is a helpless, dependent creature. Proud as he is, he is a pensioner upon divine bounty. He has nothing which he does not receive, and his true and proper attitude is one of humility and gratitude, not only upon high occasions, but as an habitual spirit and permanent state of mind. Doubtless we all lose sight of this fact and of the inexorable conditions of our case. We expect too much. We demand too much. So true is this that when we experience no signal demonstration of divine favor, nothing out of the common, no remarkable deliverance, no splendid success, no cheering tidings, no answer to an earnest prayer, long and vainly hoped for, directly we fall to moping and mumbling that we have nothing to be thankful for. Nevertheless, where are the nine? inquires Jesus. Why shall we not thank God for common mercies, for daily supplies from his storehouse, which because of their periodical occurrence fall round our feet unheeded and are classed as matters of course, like the punctual and unfailing appointments of nature. Where are the nine? Consider further that if there be deadlock, dislocation, disaster anywhere, if one's private affairs are not in a satisfactory condition, if business and money are out of joint, this is largely man's fault, rather than God's ordinance. For the most part, men pull down their troubles upon their own heads. They live unwisely, imprudently, recklessly, from time to time they run into a belt of storms and a low barometer. Depressions, failures, bankruptcies come, but why? The land is full of coal, copper, iron, oil, and the gold and the silver sleep beneath the ground awaiting the miner. The cotton grows as luxuriant as ever. The corn, the wheat, the barley, the grass, the cereals nod and sway in the sunshine and the breeze. The cattle are fattening upon the prairies and skipping upon the hills. The sea is full of fish and the atmosphere of oxygen. The land is not poor. There is always plenty. Where then is the trouble? The trouble, the sin, lies with the people. We talk of hard times, bad times. It is not the times that are bad. It is the men. The times would never be bad if it were not for those who make them what they are. It is human nature, human instincts, impulses, interests, it is human selfishness, extravagance, folly and fraud that make most of the trouble. It is the human creature himself, with his lusts of all kinds, who makes the times good or bad, hard or easy. That large, vague, impersonal generality called society is the prime mover in all mundane changes. He makes the mischief. He creates the panics. He makes money tight or free. He gluts the market and anon raises prices. He produces more than the demand can consume, and suddenly the tide turns, the market ceases, the bubble bursts, his goods are on his hands and he is out of pocket. The hard times did not suspend him, he suspended himself. The world is running at a high velocity. 
the extension of mechanical industries, the range and power and complicity of machinery, the discoveries in chemistry, the utilizing of forces and agents not known fifty years ago, the wide outlook opened to enterprise and adventure, the multiplied inventions and implements, and the specialization of work with a view to greater completeness and perfection, all these have conspired to stimulate speculation, activity, expenditure, so that many have rolled up quick and colossal fortunes, and the infection has spread and is spreading. People are grown impatient with small profits and minor transactions. So we see now and then glittering and gorgeous bubbles, looking like pavilions of oriental wealth and splendor, floated down the stream, one bursting here, another yonder, and collapsing at different points. Some grand panacea or patent world regenerator or neat little design for making something out of nothing that had begotten high expectations suddenly goes to pieces, because, forsooth, the times are bad. Oh no, it is not the times. It is the silly people who do not count the cost, who do not pause to consider whether the game is worth the chase, who will be rich at all hazards and costs. If any profitable source of revenue opens up, or article of merchandise becomes suddenly lucrative, behold the multitude that rushes in in numbers large enough to swamp it. Whatever the particular sensation or rage, be it the cultivation of a species of rose, or a variety of peach or grape, or the prospectus of a gold mine or oil well, candidates eager to exploit it multiply out of all proportion to their likelihood of success. In the last analysis, it is the love of money, the hunger for gold, the eager pursuit of a purely economic prosperity that throws the monetary machinery out of gear, and begets want of confidence, hesitation, timidity, stagnation. Hence, when you hear that times are bad, there is only one fit reply, only one prescription. Make men better, and begin with yourself. You and I, and such as we are, make up society, the world, the times. They will not be permanently better until we improve. The economic laws are right. The mechanical forces are right. The chemical changes that proceed in plant and animal are conducted properly. The sun and moon attend punctually to their business and rise and set on time. All the natural uniformities hold on without defect. The ox knows his owner, the ass his master's crib. The inorganic kingdom and the vegetable and the animal worlds beneath our feet are all sworn to keep the peace. We cannot go to any of these and complain about the currency, the tariff, taxation, the shrinkage of values, poverty, pauperism, crime, they have no responsibility in the premises. We must knock at the gate of that large, indeterminate, anonymous body called human society, mankind, and ask him why he has been pushing on so fast as to trample on moral laws, why he is so extravagant and dissipated, why he allows organized dishonesty to pile up municipal indebtedness, why he allows alcoholic poison to circulate and run down like a river, why he desecrates the Sabbath and forsakes the sanctuary, why he has not more virtue, more moral courage, more economic prudence, more morality, more reverence, more of the fear of God. I say you must go to selfish, covetous men, and ask them why they have practically abolished God and set up their own image instead, if you would discover the true rationale of the times. We talk about them often as if they were an objective reality, at war with our interests and checkmating our moves, but this is mere rhetoric. The times, good or bad, are ourselves. They are what human passions make them. They are a mirror of sheer human nature, of human ambition, 
greed, sensuality, of the antagonisms, jealousies, and rivalries of mankind. So that if any one be disposed to say at any time that he cannot thank God because the days are evil and the times out of joint at bottom, this is only tantamount to saying that he is extremely sorry he and the rest are such a shabby set of sinners, so corrupt, slippery, unreliable, untrue. Alas, for our curses and complaints over the distributions of divine providence, the sorrows that afflict us are mostly the fruit of our own devices. Could we return to sound principles, abstinence, moderation, modest ambitions, frugality, honesty, hard work, slow and gradual accumulations, a robust, incorruptible virtue, a live conscience, moral obedience to divine laws, then methinks every day would be a thanksgiving day. But as the case stands, men are bitten with a rabies for large figures, large profits, fabulous transactions, ultra-enormous incomes. Since the fall of the Roman Empire, it is doubtful whether there has been such an age of frank, unblushing hedonism and materialism as this present in which we are living. The great peril of our time is not the saloon, nor is it the brothel. It is covetousness, the lust for gold, for wealth, and the primacy and power wealth gives and the luxurious appetites and insatiable love of pleasure it gratifies. This is the dominant danger. It buys legislatures. It is the father of corrupt politics and practices and of official jobbery. It enriches the promoters of lucrative schemes at the expense of a confiding and helpless public. It is at the bottom of pretty much all the slippery sophistry and tricky shifts, the wire-pulling and whispering on the backstairs side of politics, that is constantly going on, of which now and then only a hint and echo transpire above the decent surface of things. Yea, verily, if the times are evil, the world out of joint, and the outlook somber and gloomy, let us put the responsibility where it belongs. God is good, nature is beneficent, food plenty, the harvest abundant, plethoric, nothing has gone badly wrong but the human will, the human heart, human affections. Hence, I exhort you, give glory to God. He has done all that is possible to make us contented and happy. If we are not so, it is on account of our own perversity and blind blundering, or that of someone else. Thank God for personal and private blessings, and for immunity from troubles that might easily have overtaken you, for the nameless, unnoticed circumstances of your lot not considered worth mentioning. Thank God that the conflict of ages between good and evil Light and darkness is ever coming to a fresh eruption, and is still going on with favorable omens that the good shall one day overcome the evil. Thank God for the spread of Christian truth, and that you live in an age of tumultuous fermentation, of revolution and change that is gradually casting up a way for the kingdom of God and of his Christ. Be thankful that you live not in a dreary mill-horse age, but in one where the world seems ripening, when great ideas, Great expectations, great activities have taken possession of men, and no one is greatly surprised at anything that happens. For man is no longer looking back to the old Edens, to aromatic Egypt, and grim old Babylon and Persia, with their colossal winged bulls and mysterious sphinxes and flying dragons, those vanquished kingdoms and hoary civilizations of the Nile, the Tigris, and the Ganges, or to the now silent oracles of Jupiter, Ammon, and Apollo. We have transcended that point of view altogether. The world is looking forward to fruitful discoveries, to fresh disclosures of truth, to a land of promise and of peace, of which the milk and honey and eshkol clusters of Canaan were typical, to the realization of a more perfect equilibrium and order of society. 
True, things are not so far advanced as the best would like them. There is yet much to be desired, but a beginning has been made. Truth, right, justice, love, great aspirations and ideals have been planted in the world, and a type of divine manhood has appeared in the person of Jesus Christ that can never be obliterated or forgotten. Shall we not then return with the Samaritan stranger and give glory to God? Shall we not be profoundly thankful for the regularity of the seasons, for the former and latter rain, for the bounty of the furrow, for household and family mercies, for personal preservations and deliverances? And lifting our eyes and looking abroad upon the harvest field of the world and the slow and painful evolution of man through the long travail of ages, for man is the only growing and developing creature on earth, Shall we not thank God for the germination and gradual growth of his idea for our race, for his increasing purpose, more and more filling out its orb, for the progressive ripening of history, for the opening doors of Christian activity and usefulness, for the spread of the gospel? Go home then and be thankful. Think not upon what you have not got, but rather remember what you have. Face the future with trust and courage. Take your part in the mighty stir of our time. Lend a willing hand to whatever has a scent of good and a savor of salvation in it. Serve your generation according to the will of God, and so make ready for the harvest of the world and the endless thanksgiving in heaven. End of chapter 7